Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Today's guest is Mircha Divirgin, and he is the president and CEO of the Kostopoulos Dream Foundation, known as Camp Kostopoulos, just outside of Salt Lake. And he really brings some interesting insights about the changing nature of not just the nonprofit sector, but our culture and our world as a whole. In fact, I wonder, maybe you're an employer and you're having a hard time hiring people out of this millennial generation, or maybe you've hired some and you've had a hard time figuring out what makes them tick. Uh, Maybe you feel like you're a nonprofit leader or a for-profit leader and you're thinking the game has changed. What has changed? Why are things not working like they used to work? Well, he's going to give us some insight about that, mostly geared towards the nonprofit sector, but he has some really interesting uh, insights about why things are changing. In fact, one of the things I'll just uh, give you a little teaser is, for example, people come to nonprofits now and they expect five-star service and you can no longer get away with anything less, even though you're a, quote, charity. So the perspectives of what people demand and expect out of charities slash nonprofits are changing because of this millennial generation. I think you're really going to enjoy today's show. It's so good to have you in the studio today. Well, Rob, I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, driving, you know, from beautiful canyon and Salt Lake City, Immigration Canyon, coming down through East Canyon and Parley's over here. Park City's been, you know, on a sunny, beautiful day. You couldn't have picked, you know, a better day. So I'm really excited to be here, part of your show. Absolutely. It's great to have you up in Park City, and it is gorgeous. We are so lucky to have summers like this up in Park City. And where you are is not too bad either. The canyon's pretty nice. We cannot complain. It's beautiful. You know, we're at about 5,800 feet um, higher than the valley, so it gets cooler, uh, quicker during the night. You know, very, very cool, very nice evening and nights. It really makes a difference. Tell us about what you do and how did you get to become president and CEO of the Kostopoulos Dream Foundation? Um, We all have our own stories, right? My story started in 1998. Um, I came on a, I, I live half my life in, uh, in Europe, half my life here in the United States in Utah. Uh, I came on a foreign exchange program and somehow learned about Camp Kostopoulos. Uh, ended up being a counselor support staff for the summer of 1998 while I was in college. And uh, that kind of changed my life. I haven't really... Uh, been around. I have met some people that had special needs and disabilities before that time. And you got to remember, I was fairly young at that time. I was 18 or so. Um, and uh, Camp Kostopoulos just made a very big impact because Europe, in Europe at the time, we didn't quite do as many things for people that had special needs or disabilities. Um, and coming here and see that they have free opportunities to get engaged and get involved in the community and explore and feel uh, um, 
empowered and get hope, it really empowered me and changed my life. My education, all my education is in business management, focused on uh, banking and finances, um, and um, moving into the non-for-profit world, um, you know, with my focus anyway, it really gave me an opportunity to see the world in a different way, different, through different eyes. Um, obviously, this was during college. I got introduced to Cam Kostopoulos, to amazing work that they do. Went back, uh, graduated, worked in one of the largest banks um, for a while out in Europe. And uh, in 2001, I decided that um, maybe working in the bank at the time, being, you know, 21 or so, um, it's not, you know, maybe I should try, you know, the Camp Kostopoulos uh, lifestyle, the, you know, try to, to grow as a person a little more before going back to banking. So I decided to come in uh, for about three years, was at a time is what I was uh, looking at as a timeline. And I, I came back to, to the foundation. And in 2001, I started helping in the office. Um, and uh, opportunities just got created over time. And I, I got to, to learn not just the office uh, work, but about development, about fundraising, about everything that it goes into putting together a show uh, that not-for-profits do every day. And that just became very interesting to me. And um, many, many, many years back, I'm still involved with the foundation. But that's kind of how it all started. And uh, over time, I got to do pretty much every job that there is out there to do in a not-for-profit or in any other business for that matter, from operations to man management to maintenance, to facilities, to op to programs, um, fundraising, development, marketing. So uh, wide experience of m multiple roles. Human resources mm -hmm. until I was basically COO, CFO for, for many years and then president CEO for the last three years. Very interesting. So how has all that experience shaped how you view now one organization that you lead, namely Camp Kostopoulos? How, how has it made you better as a leader, do you think, by having all those various roles? Well, um, I am at, at this point, uh, I feel like I was blessed to have all those opportunities. I think, you know, for any leaders out there that have not had hands-on in every single department, I think would be very hard to put the, piece, the pieces of the puzzle together. I think would be very hard for them to uh, really understand truly what happens in one place versus the other. Uh, you, have the, you need to use different parts of the brains to be a marketing versus an accountant and so on and so forth. Um, and as a leader, if you have those opportunities to go through different departments and really experience that, when you become at the top, when you, you become the leader yourself, and you have that value. You can respect every single job. You can respect equally every single person that contributes towards the success of the foundation. So I think it is, it's been a, a humbling experience for me to have that opportunity to really understand that every single job, it is vital and important to the success of any organization. That's excellent. And obviously, uh, you know, you are also not just involved with Camp Kostopoulos. You do a lot of things around the state. You know, we both are on the board for the UNA, the Utah Nonprofits Association. So talked about, let's talk about nonprofits a little bit. You know, what you've seen. Number one, what do you think the most unique role nonprofits play in our community? 
Um, I think it's shifting. I think every. I think the whole world is changing. There are some violent times, uh, and when I use the word violent, I mean the changes are so drastic and so fast uh, that uh, you know um, takes people by surprise. So. You know, there's different times of our histories where in decades we really, uh, you know, kind of like pile up centuries altogether. And I think we're in one of those periods of times right now where... Uh, globally or you seen as the United States? I think it's globally. I really think the whole world is shifting and is shifting dramatically. And I think it has to do with the fact that there was a status quo for a long time, maybe after the Second World War, and now that status quo is being changed, um, you know. And uh, in my opinion, uh, I was in D.C. As you mentioned, I am part of a lot of different organization on a board level to understand really what's happening in our communities. And uh, one of them, I'm uh, on their advisory board for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, representing our state of Utah. And I was in D.C. at their conference uh, national conference and Todd Chuck, the Meet the Press uh, guy, he was there speaking. And um, I think uh, having the opportunity at Camp Kostopoulos to work with 95% of my, 99% of my crew are millennials, are the, the young generation. I agree with Todd that this is an opportunity for the whole world to change uh, for a better world, I hope. Um, and the way he described it is, you know, it kind of seems like every four generation, we get this good generation that they come in and they, they create change. And it seems like the millennials are this fourth generation that is coming in with completely different expectations, completely different ambitions for life. And uh, uh, although, you know, it is hard for us, you and I were kind of like the middle generation being squeezed between, uh, you know, the boomers, the, mm -hmm. the boomers yeah. and the millennials. We were also put into a unique perspective because I don't think the millennials will ever understand the boomer, the boomers generation the, uh, and then vice versa. And I think uh, uh, there is a, I think there is a lot of uh, shifts and changes of attitude and, and life, uh, you know, understanding between those two generations. And we're in the, put in the perspective where we need to understand both of them in order to keep the, the world functioning. And um, I think this generation, they really, they've seen their parents working very hard and working many hours and not having time to enjoy uh, their families. They've seen their parents, you know, struggling working, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week um, to, foot, to put food on the table, whatever, whatever. However, they get to retirement age and their uh, health is gone or they, they pass away young and the kids are, you know, the millennials right now, they're saying, you know, that's it. That's not the life I want to have. They want more of a work-life balance, don't they? That's exactly what they want. And, you know, to some degree, when you and I, you know, we're young like that, um, and we wanted to. Uh, we were eager to enter the workforce. We were eager to be done with school so we can earn a paycheck and become somebody. We wanted the same things. We really did. Uh, we wanted to get up in the ranks really fast. We wanted to make money, and uh, 
you know, although somehow we gave up somewhere along the road and society just took over and, you know, we kind of got complacent. So I really hope this generation, I really hope this generation will not give up. The millennials, I really hope that they're going to keep pushing because we do need change in the society altogether. The status quo is really hurting the world as a whole. So do you so, think millennials are going to get more involved in nonprofits? You think that's they're driven more to give I, back to society? I, so to speak? I talk to business owners, and they I have a lot of board members. You have the higher millennials, and uh, uh, you know they have a lot of issues with them. However, when they come and work for me, I see their passion, I see their dedication, I see their hearts being poured out there. So I think this generation uh, is not you know, uh, lazy how people think they are. I think they really just need a purpose. I really they. I think they don't want to just do something just to do something and earn a paycheck. I really think that this generation wants to make a difference. So um, going back to the original question, I think the not-for-profit sector as a whole is changing and it will change dramatically in the last in the next uh, uh, 10 years 15 years in my opinion because of the millennials coming in uh, into the workforce I think you will see more um, problems around the world being solved through now-for-profits versus governments I think uh, or companies for that matter I think a lot of companies will struggle bringing in help and I think we're going to have the not-for-profit sector will have more, they'll find easier uh, uh, help and employees than the counterparts. I think uh, the for-profit world will have to figure out ways to be more socially uh, integrated because, you know, a lot of them, as we know, they write a check and they say, here's our goodwill. I think that's going to change dramatically. I think they're going to realize they need to do more volunteerism. I think they're going to realize that, you know, in order to keep them engaged, they got to give them more uh, uh, that means uh, that goes to their hearts. So um, I, I see a lot of good things happening to the non-for-profits. Um, I, I see the non-for-profit sector, really, in my opinion, um, the non-for-profit sector, what it really means to our society is a couple of things. Um, given that, you know, the legal status of a non-for-profit is there's no ownership, uh, but really the owners are your communities where you operate, that's number one. And number two, uh, you know, you do not pay taxes. So uh, because of that, you know, you have to find, inspire people like you and I that are willing to dedicate knowing that you're not going to get a statue up front. You're not going to inherit, I don't know how many shares, and you're going to get rich when you retire. But you have to have a big heart where you literally sacrifice and dedicating for a greater good. You have to be a, a, difference, a different person to become a difference maker. And I think uh, uh, we're going to find out in the next 10 and 20 and 30 years that there's going to be more and more people that are going to be think, thinking that way, that they want to change the world uh, for, for the better. Um, so considering all those aspects of things, uh, you know, I think the not-for-profit uh, sector really will, will, will do a lot of great things in the next uh, 10, 20 years. However... Um, the one negative that I see is um, there is a lot of individuals that, you know, um, with, with economic growth, 
they create a little bit of wealth, not a lot of wealth, but a little bit of wealth. And um, because we're so different, every time somebody has a million dollars, they think that it's time for them to start now for profit. And we have uh, just in Utah alone over 8,000 non for profits. And in my opinion, um, there's nothing wrong with that. But we both know that uh, four out of five have a budget of, of under $100,000. Right. And that's amazing. I mean, it's, yeah, there's a lot of small nonprofits out there. And I, I, I think, you know, the non for profit sector will, will be faced with some sort of a reality where they'll, you know, um, some will close doors, some will have to merge, which is not really popular in the not-for-profit uh, sector, but I think it will become popular in the not-for-profit sector. Uh, yeah, talk about that. How do you envision merging? We've had a, a guest on here talk about that, that there are actually now uh, nonprofits that are doing that, that are merging because of lack of fundraising or enough of a mission connect that they're like, hey, let's combine forces and have a greater impact. So you've seen this, sounds like. You see a trend in this uh, area. I think it's going to happen in two ways. It could be literally as a merger where we, you know, they join you know, legally uh, the corporations, or it could be in a very strong form of a partnership. So it could be in two ways. However, you know, um, the not-for-profit sector, in order to be to thrive and have a deeper, bigger impact in whatever communities those uh, charities are being opened or exist or function, I think they have to look at themselves as a business because um, you have to have resources in order to uh, do to, to show the world who you are and do an exceptional service. I think we also live in a time right now where everybody, doesn't matter whether you're a charity or a for-profit company, everybody expects uh, excellent services, a five-star service. And when you expect a five-star service, um, makes it very hard for a charity. Have, you know, telling people you're a charity is not, it seems like it's not an excuse anymore for not delivering a great service. Uh, you know, I, I talk to friends and other not-for-profits, for example, at Make-A-Wish, uh, you get people that, um, you know, you get, you, you get your wish fulfilled, you go to Disneyland with your family or whatnot, and then the family complains that they didn't fly business class. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So they have high expectations, yet they don't want the non-for-profit to make all this money per se and pay their staff huge salaries. And yet that often goes together with high professionalism, right? And expectations. So what's the solution to that one? That That is a, a conundrum. So I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of things that will be changing and uh, uh, rather fast. I don't think it's going to be slow because the successful non-for-profits will realize that uh, they, it's not sustainable unless they do something uh, to create it sustainable. And then the new generation, the millennials also, um, you know, although they do want to be passionate, they do want to be uh, sacrificing for a greater good of the communities and their friends and families. Um, they also, uh, I don't think they really understand the concept of the non-for-profit. I don't really understand the fact that they, you know, there's not, there's a lack of resources. So you have to reinvent yourself to create those resources in order to attract those people and those talents. So I think, you know, going forward to some degree, uh, non-for-profits will have to find resources to pay 
equally or a fair pay to similar to the for-profit world in order to attract talent, to keep talent, and so on and so forth. Because that's what, you know, it is, in my opinion, it's only fair. There, there to was get the a, best talent, you got to pay for the There was talent. a double standard out there in the community where the for-profit world, you know, everybody, you know, uh, uh, you get a fair pay and so on and so forth, but not for profit. Just because we're a not for profit, you have to, you have to be willing to sacrifice. You have to be willing to make less money and so on and so forth. And I think to some degree that was fine in in the generations that you know operated. However, everything is changing. And I think with the new generation coming into the workforce, non-for-profits will have to find resources to attract and hire the new talent coming in at a fair market price. Very interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, we had a guest on, uh, Pamela Holly, who uh, CEO of Universal Giving. She talks about how there's a big trend, not just what you're saying about you know raising salaries a bit, but the idea of non-for-profits that are struggling with sustainability financially that really need to move more towards a social entrepreneurial model where they have some type of, obviously they're still a non-profit, but there's a way to create revenue within their non-profit that's mission-related. Are you seeing that as one way to perhaps bring that talent, raise a salaries a bit so that you can have uh, better talent, which makes your nonprofit more effective? You know, that is that that is a very, very good question. I think every non-for-profit is a little different because they have, and, and by the way, in the last 10, 10 years or 15 years, but it's probably, you know, since 2008, since the world economy felt a, a seismic shake, uh, I think the non-for-profits had felt that as well. And ever since then, I think we have more needs in the community than we, although, you know, the Dow Jones, you know, has grown, although, you know, it feels like, you know, maybe life is better, economy is better. I think the needs of the community are far greater now than they were 10 years ago in every single aspect. So literally you can, you can vision, you know, you can look at a certain issue in the community and say, we can have an offer profit for that. And that's true. However, the point you just made, it is a very, very vital, important point because the p- typical expectations of an offer profit was that you have a service and it is free. So that means that you have to have a very, very, very strong a fundraising machine that brings in all the money you need in order to deliver that service. And uh, nobody really understands um, the people that come take advantage of your services don't really understand what it goes into fundraising and how much money does it. They just think you send a letter and you get a check back, which we kind of know is not really that simple. Uh, But you look at universities. Um, Universities, you know, they hire... um, they have a huge amount of hundreds, yeah, hundreds of, of development people staff right? that are in development. Hundreds. If you move from an, uh, uh, if you graduated from an alma mater and you move from city to city to city to city, that university will still find you and ask you to donate to it. That is so true. I still get mail all the, no matter how many times I move. <laughs> so how, how do they do that? Yeah, so anyway, they, so yeah, good they point. They do it through they have massive amount of fundraising. And if you do the math of how many people they hire to do fundraising, they probably need to bring in 
30 to 50 million dollars a year just to cover those salaries now they do fundraising events they do all of this it goes into hundreds of millions of dollars to pay for the fundraising department okay well said so a not-for-profit it's hard to compete with something like that because you don't have the uh, resources, especially when you have the hybrids of the public universities that they get government money plus fundraising, you know, and so on and so forth. So you get the best of the both worlds. So non-for-profits will have to adapt towards a similar uh, concept because otherwise it's going to be very hard to bring in the resources. Well, then talk about pay for success because I know that's one bit, another model out there that people have kind of looked to to say, okay, here's one way for for profits and nonprofits to work together uh, to you know and address the fundraising issue. You know, talk about that. Are you a fan of the pay for success? Is this something that you think can work um, again to address both the fundraising issue, but yet still be a nonprofit that makes a wide impact? with uh, a larger group of people coming alongside from government to for-profit? Before I I jump on to pay for success, because that's a great point, I want to, so that's the the, the non-for-profits that they have that pure mission where you collect all the resources and then you you pay for it uh, and you provide a free service. However, we we talked about non-for-profits charging a fee for their services. right, okay. And I think, you know, you look at IHC, you look at universities that are not for profit. They don't have a free service. It's a great point. They charge for their point. service and people are willing to pay for it. So I think, you know, overall, I think the, the concept and the double standard that exists out there will have to change to allow for a not for profit to, to thrive and charge a fee for their service. You could provide scholarships for people that can't afford it, people that, that, that have the money, they should pay for it. So just to close the last question, sure. pay for success is a totally different beast, in my opinion, because I think although the concept is phenomenal, it really is. It's like, okay, uh, you have an issue, you know, you find an investor, you have a, a, a social issue, you find an investor is willing to pay enough for profits, fix that issue. But then you get the government paid that investor back, which is taxpayers' money, which is fine because the way they look at it is, you know, hopefully that issue is fixed and then the government will save money in the long run. However, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be the devil's advocate and I'll say that, you know, um, I think governments around the world have tried to solve those issues for hundreds of years you know, recidivism or whatever it is that it is, uh, early childhood education, and and yet maybe you solve the issue for one or two or three or five years. However, the cycles repeat. And no matter what, I don't think, uh, you know, we don't have long enough data to really show that over 10 years, over 20 years, this is really sustainable, and they really solved that issue. I I think... I think that there's good, they're going to find out down the road that that issue was probably solved for the period of time that they really put the resources to work, and then it went back into what existed. But the concept is phenomenal. I would like to see more of it. I would like to see uh, you know uh, data over 10, 20, 30 years and see how that stacks up. Uh, however, it is still an arti- uh, uh, kind of like an artifact um, where the government still pays for the problem and that's taxpayers money. And I don't know if that's the right way to do it or not, 
to some degree is going to be up to the voters to decide if that's uh, that's a way to fix uh, issues in the community. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, then we go back to the drawing board. But it's just one other option of looking at problems and how can we solve problems. Um, and we got ultimately we got to remember that those pay for success initiatives are run by politicians and politicians have terms four years and if you get reelected eight years and most likely you know within four years it shows success and you can move on to do other things it looks good for you however you know i am skeptical a little bit just because i know the societies evolve and change and and you know you go back to the basic i think you have to have that educational component over and over and over and over again you know kind of like building roadblocks instead of going in and you know dealing with accidents uh i don't think it's going to stop i think education doesn't matter what need uh, or cause or mission you look into is phenomenal um i was reading something last night for example uh which was a great point by the way uh how do you stop how you prevent uh sexual assault and you know this was the voice of a female and i've never heard that before but it's so true she said you know it doesn't just stop with empowering women or girls and tell them speak up it should also be talking to the boys when they're boys it's not okay to do it you know so she just so had both a in, in other words yeah it's exactly. not one way or the other, right? you know i mean we didn't even look at that before and she has just a great point you know uh it, it really you have to look at how you, you can educate people on every single aspect that goes wrong in our society before it goes wrong and maybe invest in that you know uh because parents let's be honest they work they do their best to educate their kids but maybe our schools needs to focus on a lot of the education that uh, could prevent a lot of problems in our community, including debt. You know, you get people in this country by the age of 19 or 20 that they have 10 and $20,000 in debt aside from education. Right, before they get to college even. Yeah. How, you know, how is that possible? Because you mm -hmm. give them credit cards at age 16 and 18 and without any education what a credit card really is. And, you know, some might argue that that's the role of a parent. However, you know, if, if it causes an a issue in overall into our society, then maybe society needs to look at it and see how we can find some of those issues. I really am a firm believer of education and, and, and everything that exists out there and do it in a form when you have those kids, when they're young, where they can understand and perceive and so on and so forth don't do it when it's too late you know after the fact that's just my opinion well very interesting information and, and a great perspective so let me ask you one more question because uh, i know we could talk for a long time on these various issues um if you were to wave your magic wand and you were to say, okay, here's the perfect nonprofit 10 years from now, describe how that nonprofit is run. How does it fundraise? What does it look like? Because I'm guessing in 10 years, millennials are going to be now the EDs, the CEOs of these nonprofits, you know, maybe 15 years from now, depends. But uh, yeah, talk about that. What would you see? Uh, and I would say more again, in an ideal situation, if you were to wave your magic wand, what does that perfect nonprofit look like? <sighs> I think we just need to look at what is the perfect corporation right now. Uh, because not-for-profits are corporations. However, you just don't have ownership. 
and you don't pay taxes. So when you look at the perfect corporation, whichever that you want to look at, given that is Netflix or Apple or Tesla, whatever it is, uh, Google for that matter, what is that corporation? Uh, why is that corporation thriving? Or why is that corporation making a difference? It goes down to having resources, goes down to having uh, talent, and it goes down to uh, uh, being innovative. So I think non-for-profits will have to, the perfect non-for-profit will have to have talent, will have to have resources, and will have to be innovative to see how they can make a difference, greater, bigger, maximize their potential to create a better community. Love it. Mirchus, thank you so much again. Mirchus, the president and CEO of the Kostopoulos Dream Foundation, known as Camp Kostopoulos. Where can they find out more information about Camp Kostopoulos and then about you? Um, thank you so much, first of all, Rob, for this opportunity. It really is uh, inspirational to, to have the opportunity to talk about everything that we see in, in, in our communities every day. Uh, Camp Kostopoulos, uh, I'll just take a second, has been around for 50 years in our communities, was started by an immigrant, a Greek immigrant by the name of Dan Kostopoulos. Um, he saw the world in a different way and he wanted to make a difference. And what a difference did he make? Um, he created this not-for-profit with the scope of improving the quality of life through education, recreation, and growth opportunities for people of all abilities. And uh, Camp Kostopoulos is nested in the, in the beautiful hills of Immigration Canyon and the Salt Lake uh, Valley, uh, very close to the airport, very close to the city. And uh, Camp Kostopoulos uh, uh, literally you know, provides services for inclusion and empowerment for all ages, all abilities. And if you want to find out about uh, more about Camp Kostopoulos, of how you can get involved, how you can make a difference, uh, just uh, go to uh, campk.org, campk.org, uh, and you will find everything about who we are, what we do, and how you can get involved. That's great. Mircha, thank you again for being on the show. Love your insights, and it's so fun being a partner in this uh, nonprofit sector. Thank you so much, Rob. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. I want to let you know that we are on iTunes. You can go to iTunes and type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. Um, we also want to get this out to as many people as possible so they can also hear about these great leaders doing great things around the country. So we'd appreciate you give us a great rating. Let us know what you think about it, and that'll help us get this podcast to more people. Also, if you want to just find us on the web, you can go to nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or robharder.com, my own website. Again, thanks for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.